Hi, this is Mike Levin. This is Swampcast. It's February 8th, and I have with us today Tom Conrad of Pandora. Hey, Tom, how's it going? I'm good. It's great to be here. Well, good. Now, you know what I'm going to do as we're talking? Yes. I made sure to set my recording device, my hot recorder, to mono so we don't have uh, two channels on the, the end product or try to, to deal with audacity and learn how to merge the two channels into one. <laughs> okay. Which uh, I would probably be very grateful to have your help with since uh, you are the, the, the chief technologist, the, the lead technical guy of Pandora. Guilty. All right. Well, I talked uh, with Tim Westergren the other day, and we did a podcast, and we talked about uh, what Pandora was and uh, you know the motivation behind it, the Music Genome Project. We went into some details about uh, the musicologists that work with Pandora and the 400 or so music uh, genome attributes that uh, Pandora has assembled in order to categorize music. Um, and, um, and then, basically, after that, uh, Tim recommended that you and I talk about the nitty-gritty um, software architecture, the technology behind Pandora, and what makes it run. Sure, so happy to do that. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of where, where we're coming from here. Uh, but first, a little bit about you. You're in Oakland, California right now, is that right? I am in Oakland, yes. Okay. It's a, a very gray, drizzly day in Oakland today. Well, um, I guess as the expression goes, a, a gray, drizzly day in Oakland is better than <laughs> a lot of other places. Fair enough, fair enough. Certainly yeah. better than 20 below in uh, in New York or whatever it's been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it is, it is February after all. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, since you and I haven't talked before. Um, your maybe your your uh, your background and you know what um, brings you to the very responsible position of uh, chief tech guy for Pandora. Sure. Um, well, I'm uh, I'm the the CTO at, at Pandora, chief technology officer, and and uh, CTO in different companies means different things. Uh, here, um, my responsibilities really cover. Um, the whole range of efforts from conception through delivery of uh, Pandora, the, the product. So I, the, the folks who work for me are product managers and user interface designers and software developers and even the, the technical operations people who run the data center, who rack up servers and buy bandwidth and keep the service scaling and running 24 by 7. Um, which makes it for a really fun job because I, I get to kind of sit at the intersection of you know everything from original product concepts through user experience, design and testing, building it, and then and actually shipping it out to and, and making it available to uh, to listeners. Awesome. Uh, definitely, definitely the the best job in in the world for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, hard to imagine something I could do that I would enjoy more. My background is kind of a mix of consumer software and 
um, enterprise software. And the, probably the most interesting consumer things I've done is I, I, I worked on the user interface for the Macintosh for um, four or five years in the early 90s. Um, and I worked uh, as the technical director for a, a, a video game series called You Don't Know Jack uh, that was um, fairly popular in the in the latter half of the 90s. Um, uh, uh, Definitely the most notorious thing I've been involved in is I, I, I was the director of engineering at Pets.com, so I, uh, you know, I did my part to destroy the U.S. economy. Um, and uh, and then about three years ago, had the uh, the privilege of getting hooked up with Tim and the, the people that were the you know the, the early incarnation of what became Pandora, um, uh, and have been here ever since. Uh, the enterprise software stuff I've done is, I'm sure entirely uninteresting <laughs> to your audience. <laughs> well, okay. Well, God, so I am talking to the right guy, aren't I? <laughs> so, um, when you came to Pandora and uh, got your got your head around what the objectives were, what were you looking at in terms of uh, the, the software architecture, software and hardware architecture? Sure. So when I came to, to Pandora three years ago, the company really had built this data asset, the Music Genome Project, so the, the sort of studied analysis of a hundred years of popular music, and had kind of brought that to market through other brands. So AOL had used it to make recommendations on their website. Best Buy had used it in their stores to make recommendations at kiosks. Those kinds of things, and. I joined at a time where the company was uh, beginning to ask the question, gosh, could we build a product and, and take it directly to the end user without kind of you know, going through an AOL or a Best Buy or some kind of middleman? And um, you know, we looked at a bunch of ideas, everything from um, doing a, uh, uh, a website that was, was kind of a all music guide, you know, music encyclopedia, learn all about the artist's albums and songs that you love, get music recommendations, that kind of thing. We looked at something that would plug into your iTunes and observe what you were were playing and make recommendations based on, on, on that action. Um, uh, but the thing that really caught our fancy, and I have to, I have to uh, give all of the credit here to our CEO, um, Joe Kennedy, who really... Um, uh, was the first one to point to the role that radio plays in the typical um, U.S. music consumer's life. Um, there are a bunch of interesting statistics around this. Um, one of them is that the you know, average person in the, the U.S. listens to 17 hours of music radio a week and just three hours of music that they own. Um, so when you start looking at that and other statistics uh, in this category, it's obvious pretty quickly that the principal way that, that Americans get music is through radio. Um, and so from that and, uh, and some other factors, um, we started to converge as a group around this idea of what we called at the time one-click personal radio. And um, kind of with that high-level direction set, um, my team and I set about the task of figuring out, well, okay, what would this really look like? What would it do? How would it behave? Um, and this is all back in the fall and early winter uh, of 2004 and, and uh, going into 2005. Um, 
And uh, we built the original version of the service um, from sort of January to June of 2005. So we came out had the user interface design sort of done by January and began implementation. Um, getting to your specific question about the, the sort of a high-level view of the architecture, um, uh, much of the business logic is written in Java. Um, it runs in a simple... Um, uh, J2SE servlet container. There's no kind of you know fancy J2WE EJB you know uh, uh, kind of in my from my perspective over engineered uh, uh, kind of uh, stuff in the in the system. It's really a pretty simple, straightforward architecture um, in terms of the platform. Um, we run on um, Debian, which is a flavor of Linux. Uh, we use um, the Postgres open source database. Um, uh, lots of open source technology in the in the back end of Pandora. Um, on the front end, we you know deliver the, the listening experience through Flash, and to simplify the development of the what we call the tuner, which is the kind of the player that you interact with. Um, we use something called Open Laszlo, which is a development platform for uh, uh, letting Programmers build things that get deployed to Flash. So rather than using the kind of Flash animation engine to try to create something that looks like a user interface, you're actually able to put buttons and menus and things on the screen that behave like buttons and menus. Awesome. Okay. So that, um, I'm having a little trouble distinguishing between what you encountered when. You arrived, and and uh, and then the timeline. But I guess, um, yeah, from January to June of 2005, you uh, you started fleshing out basically the architecture after you developed the, the the user interface. Yeah, to to that point, the company had you know we've been doing these projects for other consumer brands, and so we did kind of radically different things than Pandora. So, um, for example, for Best Buy, we actually built kiosks um, for their for their you know, retail brick-and-mortar stores where uh, a consumer could walk up to the kiosk, scan the barcode on a CD, listen to samples of all of the tracks, learn about the artist, see their whole discography, get music recommendations. Um, we actually, for that project, designed the bracket that that was used to mount the flat panel display to the, to the, uh, the CD racks in Best Buy. So it was a very kind of... Um, Different business and, and and really kind of the uh, the main principle guiding it was was find an outlet for the music genome. So we were kind of willing to do almost anything um, for for an interesting big customer. So if Best Buy wanted kiosks, we'd do that. If AOL wanted a web services API, we'd do that. If Tower wanted us to build a a website for them and host it for them, we'd do that too. It was almost like kind of professional services um, uh, rather than. Um, uh, sort of product engineering. And Pandora is much more a traditional sort of product company. Okay. We even changed the name actually in that transition. Um, before the Pandora, we were a company called Savage Beast Technologies. Cool. Okay. All right. Well, I guess I'll just cut right to the chase because the burning question in my mind about the architecture is how you manage these music genomes, how you deal with the uh, the user preferences. If uh, if I create uh, Stephen Stills Radio and I say I like Treetop Flyer and Pandora starts playing male acoustic rock and roll music 
and I say, okay, I don't like the song that you're playing. Pandora remembers that. And if I say, yes, I do like the song that you're playing, Pandora remembers that. And ostensibly, each of those songs that I've just voted thumbs up or thumbs down to have genomes associated with it. So what I'm really curious about is, uh, is there a rules engine like... uh, you know, J rules or something like that. Uh, is it is it a knowledge based uh, a learning engine that learns from your preferences? How does that work? Sure, sure. So, kind of the at the core of all of this is something that we call the the matching engine. And the matching engine's job is to, given some point in the music universe, find other similar points. And so the way that that actually works, um, sort of at 10,000 feet, is that each of the songs that we've analyzed has been scored across hundreds of different musical dimensions. Um, I think Tim probably talked a little bit about what some of those dimensions are and and, and how we think about that process. Um, And for my part, we take that huge database of musicological information encoded song by song, And we place it all into um, this matching engine that we've created, which allows us to compute distances between two songs um, in 400-dimensional space. Um, So it's really a little bit like, you know, if if, if every song is, you know, uh, a star in the night sky, um, we're able to kind of draw... A sphere, albeit a 400-dimensional sphere, around um, uh, one of those stars and see what other songs are encompassed in that volume. And the ones that are close are similar, and the ones that are farther away are not so similar. Um, and so everything for us starts with this this matching operation, this distance computation. It's kind of the, I think of it as like the reptilian brain of the playlist system. Um, and then on top of that is a, uh, a complicated system of um, rules and business logic that dictate how we put songs together into uh, uh, a listening experience. So um, one of the things that we have to sort of solve for is that when you tell us that you like um, the Beatles, well, the Beatles actually are musically a number of different things right over there, you know, eight-year recording history. They recorded different kinds of music. They sort of evolved. Um, and and so one of the things we had to tackle early on is, like, well, how will that manifest itself in a, in a, a Beatles station? Um, and so we solved that by using each of their albums as an indicator of what they were like inside of a particular era. Um, and so you might, on Pandora, hear three or four songs that are influenced by an early Beatles album, followed by three or four songs that are influenced by another Beatles album. So you go on a kind of musical journey that takes you through the styles that they um, that they uh, you know, experimented with over the years. Now, as you start to give feedback, we start to understand a whole bunch of things. We understand which of those eras you're most interested in. We, un- we start to understand the underlying musical attributes that you care about. So we can look for commonality across your feedback to say, oh, like this person really likes breathy female vocals when combined with a certain kind of um, uh, song structure or a certain kind of guitar or instrumentation. 
And so in uh, the successive calls into this matching engine, we can start to emphasize those traits in the distance computation and de-emphasize other things that you're less sensitive to. So it's um, uh, sort of this rather complex system of, of uh, rules and uh, vector space math um, that help us understand uh, how things fit together. That's interesting. So, do you use a rules engine, or have you written uh, logic to to create the rules engine? We've written logic to create to we've, all of the the sort of rules kind of stuff is is implemented in in, in software. Um, okay. There's no externalized rules engine like J rules or anything. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. And I, and, and is the logic um, you know a complex sequence of if then else statements, or is there some other way that you approach it? It's actually sort of implemented as a kind of um, a series of pipes and filters. So we have classes that we kind of plug together um, into a sequence because a lot of it is is um, uh, sort of filtering operations. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to build playlists that are compliant with the uh, rules set forth in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that govern... Uh, the kinds of playlists that can be broadcast or unicast, I suppose is the right word, um, on an internet radio station. And these are things like you can only play a certain number of songs by one artist over a three-hour period. Um, and um, so like one of the, the filters that we would plug into this playlist pipeline might guarantee that, might say, oh, well, even though you think this song by The Cure is the perfect song to play next, we can't play it because we've already exhausted, you know, our opportunity to play the cure in the previous, you know, hour. Right. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. I can see that. Now, what kinds of um, issues did you come up against once you came up with an initial, you know, proof of concept, like a, a prototype uh, matching engine? So. The matching engine is um, is probably most interesting from the standpoint that um, so we have these you know these four hundred attributes song by song and uh, uh, the the matching engine algorithm itself is is pretty straightforward from a sort of um, computer science standpoint. I mean, if you were to go and sort of read up on vector space distance computation, you know, you 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 quickly under you know sort of come to be familiar with with the the core loop of the of the matching engine. What's really novel about Pandora though is the way that we apply weighting in these distance computations. And and without giving too much away about the about some of the core intellectual property, a lot of the tuning that goes into the matching engine is 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 um, uh, setting a set of weights that describe in this particular context um, uh, piano is less important than guitars and guitars are more important than vocals but vocals are more so that you have this kind of set of weights applied to the distance computation that kind of shoves the vector space around to tune it to um, particular kinds of music or particular personal preferences and um and some of that tuning is um, global by kind of broad genre of music. And so in the beginning, um, uh, tuning the matching engine was less about the software, which is pretty simple, you, you know, spin in a loop computing distances, um, and a lot about sort of changing the parameterization on the system, like what are the weights on each of these genetic values. 
Okay. Gee, whew, boy, that's really something. Okay, so um, I guess, you know, the first thing that, that comes to mind is, uh, you know, the scalability, because once you launched Pandora, uh, you became quite popular, and, you know, your listener base grew. Did you have any, uh, any scalability issues? Yeah, that, uh, you know, certainly um, uh, building the system to scale was something that we thought about from, from the beginning. Um, uh, but the, the growth of Pandora has been um, kind of uh, beyond our wildest dreams. So um, uh, there have definitely been moments where uh, uh, you wondered if you were going to be able to keep up. Um, uh, inter- the interesting thing about Pandora is uh, scaling architecture is that we've been really cognizant from the very beginning that uh, we had to build a system that could scale horizontally, which means you can add more and more servers as you need, as more and more users come on, and um, the load will naturally get distributed across those servers. And um, uh, while that may seem you know sort of simple in concept. Um, Doing that well is is something that lots of companies sort of stumble on, um, and so from the beginning we sort of divided our, our platform up into um, kind of four pieces. Um, one piece is the tuner itself, the piece that lives on the desktop and contributes to this process of playlist generation. It actually plays an active role in it. The tuner um, is responsible for some of the elements of the 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 stream creation process. Um, And then the second of these four tiers is is the the sort of business logic tier. We call them application servers, though they're not application servers in the traditional J2EE sense. Um, The third critical tier is um, our back-end database, where all of the, the information about users, their stations, their feedback lives. And then we have the final tier, which is our media servers, which are responsible for the delivery of audio streams. And each of those has uh, the ability to scale horizontally. So if we start to run out of back-end database resources, we can add more database boxes to scale that capability. Uh, The same goes for our media servers and also for our application servers. But because of the functional requirements of each, the kind of the specifics of how you scale horizontally is a little bit different in each case. But meta idea is, you know, want your system to scale, build it for horizontal scaling. And, you know, where things get interesting then is that if your system does that, it scales horizontally. Um, the, the scaling challenge isn't so much about software anymore, but it's about your ability to accurately predict how much traffic will be on the site in, let's say, four weeks from today. Because if you can't predict that far out pretty accurately, you can run yourself into trouble because the system will scale, but you can't buy, provision, burn in, rack up servers fast enough to keep up with demand. Because let's say it takes three weeks to get a new server you know, ordered from your supplier, the software on it, it in a rack, and it's serving traffic. So if you don't know how many servers you're going to need three weeks from now, you, you can end up in a bind. So a lot of, of success and failure for us in terms of scaling is about accurately predicting demand in advance. Okay. All right. 
Now, what about the software development uh, life cycle and methodology? Um, did you, you know, when you, I guess at this point you've got a, a mature application that's in production. Uh, do you, when you implement new features, are you using any particular methodology with your with your development group, like Agile or something like that? Sure, yeah. Um, I've got an uh, unbelievable team of software developers that uh, uh, here at Pandora, um, and they're led by a, a really fantastic director of software engineering named Chris Martin. Um, not, not the singer from Coldplay, um, uh, though I'm sure he'd be a great director of engineering as well. Um, but uh, uh, Chris and the team... Um, uh, uh, do, you know, sort of run with this, this sort of agile style development. Um, we do um, two kinds of releases. Uh, we do a release every week um, that is usually comprised of some kind of low-hanging fruit or maybe advertiser-driven um, uh, functional changes, things that we can, you know, implement and test quickly and deliver uh, to our listeners. Um, and so that's sort of the sort of week-to-week operational heartbeat of the of the company. But but most of the effort around here goes into releases. Um, oh, they, they, you know, bigger releases that come usually every three or four months. You know, sometimes they're two months, sometimes they're four months. But I think the the sort of ideal rhythm for us is to do a major software release every uh, every three months. And um, uh, so we divide that, that, that three-month period up into two-week-long iterations, and the team sort of plans, um, you know, enhancements to the system two weeks at a time, um, uh, uh, even during these longer development cycles. And so we'll start at the beginning of a, a three-month stretch with a, a sense of what we want to deliver in that, that big release and uh, break it down into constituent parts, write them out on note cards, um, uh, uh, there's a lot of test-driven development that goes on here. I mean, I think if you were to ask me to look back at the, the last 10 years of software development and, and, and you know, identify the, the thing that's changed software development the most in my career, you know, um, as wonderful as open source is and, you know, the, the availability of um, low-cost bandwidth and, and Linux and all of these other great things, um, you know, I without any hesitation, point to um, test-driven development as the single biggest, most profound change I've seen over my career. Um, you know, we're able to make complex changes to the system, refactor, you know, substantial parts of the, of, of the application, um, uh, and, you know, run a suite of tens of thousands of automated tests that very quickly tell us whether we have something that's releasable or not without any kind of long, human-driven qualification process. Great, great. Now, I've noticed that you uh, you have a new interface, or, or a somewhat new interface. When I logged on to my Pandora account, I noticed that now if I go into my personal preferences, it keeps track of all the songs that I've given thumbs up and thumbs down to. Yep. And that's cool. You yeah, know, we just... Go ahead. Oh, because that just doesn't, you know, slip away into the ether. You know, at least from a user standpoint, it's 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 nice to be able to see that. But that seems like that would be, you know, that's a, that's a lot to wrap your arms around. Yeah, we. Um, I mean, our design philosophy has always been um, maybe a little inside out from uh, uh, most of our sort of 
music website brethren, which is that that the vast majority of people who come to the site are principally listen, interested in listening to music. That 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 yes, there's absolutely this constituency who wants to build a profile and build really complex stations and learn about the artists and buy a lot of digital tracks and meet other people who like the same artists and this whole kind of, you know, you know, music uh, community and, and metadata universe that a lot of sites are really focused on. Um, but at Pandora, we've really kind of said, you know, let's, let's focus first on listening, have a great experience where someone can come, they can hear music um, that they love, and then when they have that just aha moment where they're like, oh my gosh, who is this? I need to know more about this band. That they can kind of lean in, um, learn more about the artist, meet other people who like the artist, um, add it to their profile to declare to the world that, they, that they've discovered this, this great new piece of music. Um, and so in a way, we've kind of turned the experience inside out rather than a bit of being you know, first about browse, 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 get to the bottom of some big tree click and hear some music, it's really hear some music, and then when you feel motivated to really lean in and learn more, uh, have those things be there under the surface. But one of the things that that means as a side effect is that we do all kinds of things here at Pandora that stay just under the surface until you go looking for them. So, you know, if you were to compare Pandora's homepage today versus Pandora's homepage when we launched 18 months ago, you'd say, my goodness, what is the engineering team be doing? It looks almost exactly the same. Um, and what we've been doing is we've really been building out that sort of iceberg underneath the surface of the water so that when you lean in, there's just all of this richness there. And I'm glad you've stumbled upon some of it that we've added recently, the, the station pages um, uh, that show you all of your feedback and let you quickly build a much more complicated station are something that we did in December um, uh, as part of a release that was sort of around um, making it easier to share your musical personality with, with other people who are using Pandora. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Well, let me ask you kind of a multi-phase question here. If you look back on the development process, development and architecture uh, design process, what would you have done differently? You know, what do you what do you find difficult? And um, also, looking at uh, new technology um, or relatively new technology, like say Ruby on Rails, for example, that's you know sweeping the industry. Um, what do you think about that? What's the future plan? Sure. Um, well, so let me start with what I might do differently. I'm uh, uh, incredibly proud of the of the software that we've we've built at Pandora, and and there's not a lot that that uh, I lie in bed at night and worry about these days. Um, but one area that um, I think we didn't think enough about in the beginning, um, uh, and made some decisions early on that were perfectly reasonable decisions for, you know, the kind of company we were, you know, six weeks after we launched that sort of set us up for some um, heartache down the road is we didn't think enough about what I'll call operational reporting. Um, uh, you know, we have um, reporting infrastructure that we, uh, that we use to uh, tell the rights holders about the music that we play so we can pay the appropriate royalties. We have reporting um, that... Um, uh, we use with our partners, like for example, Microsoft is a partner of ours. We power their radio service, and we like to tell them about about um, you know in aggregate how the, the uh, that integration is performing. Um, uh, we have 
weekly metrics that we look at to understand how our you know business is evolving in terms of like the number of hours that people are listening and those kinds of things. Um, and then of course we we analyze people's behavior. Uh, in aggregate on the site to understand opportunities to make the user experience better. All normal stuff. Um, and we have a re- reporting system that that allows us to answer all of those questions and you know um, you know accurately. What it doesn't let us do is always answer the, answer them as in, in as timely a fashion as I'd like. So um, t- Pandora, you know, generates a tremendous amount of data every day, and um, you know, building a robust reporting infrastructure that you know. Um, you know, every day of the year has the reporting information that you need available um, at your fingertips is, is is a hard problem and something to not be taken lightly. And I think that there were moments early in the evolution of the service where we said, well, let's just do this, where, you know, that was perfectly fine for uh, a website that had tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of, of listeners. But now that we have, you know, five million plus listeners, it's... Um, uh, uh, it's straining a bit at the seams, and so we're we're working really hard to correct that. But I think uh, I think there were some some decisions we made earlier that that would have set us up for for better success if we'd gone a different way. So how do you do your reporting? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, we um, you know it's sort of in the broad strokes. It, it looks a uh, it looks a lot like um, traditional web reporting. We have. You know, the, the Pandora cluster is about 130 machines, all of which generate log files of uh, uh, user activity and audio playback and state transitions and all kinds of just a wealth of data about um, uh, user activity on the site. Um, we also, have, of course, have a you know, like an operational database that tells us about users and their stations and their feedback that we use actually in the process of, of running Pandora. And to do reporting, all that data needs to come together in a kind of data warehouse in a, uh, in a form that, that where we can you know, run analytical reports. Um, and so we have a, a system that we built that takes those log files from these 100 machines you know, all day, every day, ships them to a data warehouse, uh, loads them into the data warehouse, um, and of course replicates for for uh, across to other data to multiple database instances, so that we have additional we have both uh, you know failover and, and redundancy and backups and all of those things. Um, and uh, and probably the single so all of that is good. Um, uh, the, the the area that that uh, I think could be stronger is that the the, um, this operational data needs uh, some kind of a presence in the, the reporting so that we can sort of say, hey, for all of the users who um, are subscribers and tend to listen at night and have made stations in the you know, alt-country uh, 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 universe, like, how long do they tend to listen daily? Like, that brings in... Um, not just sort of website behavior information, but also what I would call operational data, information about who these people are and what kind of stations they're creating. Um, and that data is loaded into the system in a way that, that um, you know, as this number of users increases in the system, it's just sort of operationally unsupportable. Um, and uh, and so, you know, the, the solution to that, of course, is to, to, to 
extract that data from the operational schema, loaded it into a kind of you know cube structure in aggregate, um, and that's a project that we're, we're working on now, and, and frankly one I wish we had done from the beginning. Yeah, well that's very interesting, and that's a whole topic uh, by itself. I mean, my next question about the reporting was going to be, are you writing complicated SQL queries, or are you doing some data warehousing stuff where you're, you know, you know, doing traditional data warehousing queries? It's a, it's a little of both at the moment. Um, uh, you know, some of our uh, uh, analysts on the on the business side are are, are, are remarkable SQL wizards, and and. Uh, uh, they're as reluctant as anybody to move away from systems that they can just sort of do uh, sort of almost ad hoc style SQL querying against. Um, so uh, we're in a bit of a transition there where, you know, uh, when the data sets were small, um, it was possible and tempting to build a lot of kind of uh, uh, you know, traditional uh, SQL uh, kind of reporting um, without any kind of, you know, sort of star schema, you know, sort of data uh, approach and uh, where the implicit set of, of questions you can ask sort of you know, diminishes, but the performance so radically increases. And, and we're in the middle of that transition now. So what you're saying is some of these queries take a long time to run? Some of them take a long time to run, yes. Okay, okay. All right, well, that's, that's very interesting. And, and are you sticking completely with open source here, you know, the Postgres database, or, or are you, you know, moving to some commercial um, warehousing product? We at the at the moment we're, uh, the the path is to continue with uh, open source offerings. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, and and with a view to the future, um, you know, what sorts of uh, lessons learned are you are you planning on putting into place? Uh, you know, overall architecture, hardware, staffing, growth. Uh, sure. Well, 2006 was a tremendous year of growth for us um, in the product organization. We started the year with um, uh, probably on the order of uh, six or ten people in the whole product organization, and we, you know, um, are up over 20 now. And uh, uh, so we'll see some growth this year, mostly in areas that that sort of naturally scale with usage, so like things like technical operations, the people who have to keep the servers running, more users, more servers, more people in technical operations. But the, the software engineering team is, is uh, a pretty finely tuned machine at this point, and, and uh, uh, I think very capable. So we'll, we'll, I think, probably principally spend 2000 you know, taking all the great talent that we have and applying it to, uh, to new problems that come our way. Um, from an architecture standpoint, um, I think one of the interesting opportunities for us in 2007 is to um, uh, uh, move to a, a, a more sophisticated approach to storage management. Um, you know, Pandora plays from a library of songs that, that um, uh, is about two terabytes of data. Um, as we set down some uh, 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 some new paths this year that will uh, that will grow as a as a, a pretty substantially, um, both by adding more songs and going to um, a broader range of platforms that require different audio formats. Um, and I think that growth in our storage requirements will, you know, push us beyond just 
uh, you know, media servers with lots and lots of disks that, uh, you know, uh, that, that store all of the content to, to some more sort of centralized uh, uh, storage kind of approach. Um, we're just at the very beginning of, of, of thinking about what our options are there. But that'll be an interesting um, sort of architectural uh, uh, shift for us to go through um, uh, in 2007. Okay, three quick questions. You know, sure. database, database, programming language, operating system. Pros and cons of Debian Linux, Java, and Postgres. Um, well, the, the, the thing that really drew us to uh, Debian um, uh, in the beginning uh, were kind of two things. One is we felt that the, the community of contributors to the Debian um, uh, kernel were extremely responsible. Um, just felt like the quality of patches um, and improvements we saw uh, in, the, in the kernel over time were um, uh, you know, particularly well thought out, um, uh, uh, sort of evolved rather methodically, um, uh, just sort of a very sort of dependable uh, uh, industrial strength kind of uh, distribution. Um, and the second part is the whole kind of package management system that's that's part and parcel with uh, with Debian. Um, so uh, you know, being able to from a centralized place, um, you know, push uh, consistent packages out across a, uh, a a large farm of machines is a really appealing part of the of the Debian universe. Um, I think probably the single biggest downside is that um, you know it makes uh, deploying packaged enterprise software um, a bit more challenging than if we had gone down the um, uh, you know like the Red Hat enterprise path because you know if you if we wanted say to run an Oracle or maybe one of these packaged um, data warehousing products that, that 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 you talked about often when they certify for Linux they certify specifically for um, you know, Red Hat Enterprise, and if you want to try to run it on, on, on Debian, for example, they say, well, we can't support you. Um, uh, so that's probably the, the, the only downside, is that there are certain paths that are more difficult or completely cut off from you because of, of, uh, of that dimension. Um, you know, uh, uh, Java was an, an easy choice for us, um, mostly because, the, you know, since the company has been around since 2000, there was a uh, there were both, you know, uh, software engineers who had been on the team from the very beginning, who were Java developers and had, you know, built out big, you know, parts of the core uh, uh, music genome system using Java. Um, uh, we also use a lot of Python, and there's been Python in the in the in the system from the very beginning. Um, you know, when I arrived three years ago, and we started talking about building, um, uh, you know, building Pandora itself. Um, the radio product, uh, there was never really a moment where we said, gosh, should we use PHP or should we use Ruby on Rails or should we, you know, should we you know, reevaluate Java? I mean, they're just, uh, our experience with Java and the skill set of the teams clearly pointed to it being the right answer for us. Um, uh, by contrast, on the front end, you know, we, we did have a sort of lively discussion about whether we should pursue a AJAX style front end or, um, uh, build a desktop app, or, or or use Flash by itself, or use Flash in conjunction with some kind of higher level framework like Open Laszlo, um, and that that conversation, op, you know, ultimately took us to the Open Laszlo decision, which is is uh, 
is a choice that I think everybody on the team is really, really happy with. Um, uh, Laszlo is a tremendous platform supported by a great um, corporate entity as well as a community of open source contributors. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, in my experience, almost every time you select some piece of uh, you know platform technology like that, and then, uh, you know, there's some moment where you you come to uh, at least momentarily regret the decision as you wrestle with some bug in a piece of software that somebody else wrote, you know, years before, and uh, and we've never really had that that moment with uh, the Laszlo platform. Uh, um, we're kind of its uh, its biggest fans and, and acolytes. And what about Postgres? Ah, uh, Postgres. Yes. Yeah. So I have uh, similarly glowing things to say about Postgres. Um, uh, we um, in those early years, before the Pandora radio service, we used Oracle. And, um, you know, we never, we never had a, a, a real Oracle DBA on the team. Um, you know, we had a bunch of people who had learned the ins and outs of Oracle on the job here at, uh, you know, uh, then Savage Beast. Um, uh, and, you know, candidly, my sense is that we never really gained intellectual mastery over the, the beast that is Oracle. Um, and at least partially because the rest of the system was open source. When we had issues or problems or couldn't wrap our head around, you know, the, the manifest behavior of the system, we'd go to the source and look at what it did um, and understand it sort of from the nuts and bolts up. And with Oracle, sort of this black box and a long history and, and convoluted evolution, you know, you, you can't do that. Um, and so we made the decision to, to switch to um, an open source database product um, in uh, mid-2004, in fact, when we were still Savage Beast, and um, because we had been, a, you know, this or, you know, had this system that was built on top of Oracle, we had um, uh, true transactional behavior in the system, lots of stored procedures at that time, um, and uh, we certainly looked at MySQL, but because they take a kind of contrarian view to the, the role of transactions in database architecture, and because their support for stored procedures was modest and not, not analogous to what was available to us in Oracle, it made for uh, a conversion that would have been uh, a really radical change, and, and, and Postgres was, you know, more a more evolutionary kind of transition for us. Um, uh, so, um, having made that transition, we went from a team that, that that spent a lot of its time lamenting database behavior to to you know sort of really being enthusiastic about what we you know would see with the database tier. And uh, I, I have nothing but great things to say about Postgres. Couldn't couldn't begin to compare and contrast it to MySQL, but. Uh, 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 certainly, um, if somebody asked whether we were happy with what we've, we've gotten out of uh, out of Postgres, the answer would be sort of an enthusiastic yes. Well, I've got nothing but great things to say about this conversation. Um, and short of looking at the uh, the actual source code, you know, you've answered most of my questions here. So this has really been fascinating, and I, I really appreciate it. Have you got any um, any other things you'd like to add? Well, I just just to say thank you for uh, thank you for listening to Pandora, and thanks for listening to me prattle on about uh, about how we build it. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Oh yeah, likewise. I think I'll I'll, I'll...
crank up my Leo Kopke radio here <laughs> and see what's see what's playing. Um, well, if folks want to uh, say contact you or ask some uh, some questions later, uh, do you have any uh, contact info you'd like to pass along? Yeah, absolutely. People are welcome to uh, to send me email directly. I'm T Conrad T C O N R A D at Pandora.com. I would love okay. to hear from you. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, this has been Swampcast with Tom Conrad of Pandora, and uh, appreciate you listening. If you have any questions or comments, suggestions, uh, send me an email on mike at swampcast.com, and we will talk to you next time.